Welcome to Purdue Crop Chat, a regular podcast from Hoosier Ag Today and the Purdue University Extension Service, featuring Purdue Extension Corn Specialist Dr. Bob Nielsen and Extension Soybean Specialist Dr. Sean Castile. In Episode 4, planting is underway in Indiana, but are the soils ready for it? Even though technically, for the past three weeks, technically, the soil temperatures have been averaging 50 degrees. But you just don't accumulate growing degree days very fast when you're only averaging 50 or 55 degrees. I see a similar thing on the soybean front. I I use that rule of thumb as well, 50 degrees. Now with the Purdue Crop Chat, here's your host, who's your ag today's Andy Eubank. Welcome to another edition of Purdue Crop Chat. And joining me is Bob Nielsen, Purdue Extension Corn Specialist, and Sean Castile, Purdue Extension Soybean Specialist. There is planting happening. Let's first review the newest crop progress report from USDA's NAS. We are looking at 4% of the Indiana corn acres as planted as of Sunday, April 19. 2% is the number on soybeans. It was a week that turned colder and caused many farmers to hold off on planting, but there is plenty of field work in planting this week, so those numbers could jump quite a bit. And Bob and Sean, do you concur? Well, that's certainly the feedback we're getting, not only from around the state, but what we see ourselves. So, yeah, I, I think the gates were opened uh, on Monday, and at least on the corn side, um, certainly a lot of activity beginning to happen around the state. Yeah, I'd say on the soybean side, uh, I've seen a lot of planters rolling already. Uh, no-till conditions, able to, to push it a little bit and, and not have to worry about the tillage. And I've seen a fair amount of tillage, so both uh, from what I've seen, uh, corn stubble and uh, a bean stubble ground. So I think both crops are getting a, a roll going this week. What are you hearing as far as geography? Is it pretty much the same all across the state, lots of activity? Well, as usual, it depends. Um, because there are some areas of the state where the soil surface is still um, wet, up north where they had the snow uh, in particular, perhaps. But um, so it just varies around the state. I, it, it's, uh, uh, you know, you're getting reports of some planting almost everywhere. Um, but it's, uh, you know, we're still in the early stages, too. I mean, we, you know, last Monday's report had us only at 4%. And typically the, you know, the week that we're in now tends to be the beginning of the ramp up. And, and I think certainly uh, by next week, is uh, chances are that's when we'll see uh, the biggest jump as long as the, the weather remains favorable. Sean, uh, did you notice that Bob pulled out It Depends, that extension staple, real early in the kernel cast or podcast? <laughs> oh, he's good about doing that. But uh, as far as across the state, I, I agree. I think that uh, we've got those areas in the south that have had some pretty nice temperatures and rolling for a while. And, you know, I know two weeks ago, April 8th or so, we were having some activities uh, over Deer Creek and, and thereabouts. So uh, I think it's a lot of these field conditions, how well they got drainage and, and how fast they can roll. Um, and these temperatures are, are something that, you know, is a little bit of a concern, but um, I guess we're going to see what comes in the following week. Okay. Well, planting is now underway. You mentioned the temperatures the soil conditions, we'll get into that as well, soil temperatures and moisture. So are these acceptable dates and conditions for planting? How would you address that? Well, the dates are certainly uh, in line with, with hi- history. Historically, 
the majority of our corn crop tends to be planted uh, over a four-week window beginning roughly now and ending somewhere in the third or fourth week of May. So from a calendar perspective, it's certainly um, time to be out there, and that's the pressure people are feeling, especially you know, with the, the memories we all have of last year's uh, near-historic record slow planting progress. What's, what's challenging now, or at least what should be on the minds of, of people, is that uh, these soil temperatures continue to lag, and... Um, and last week's cold snap, you know, certainly uh, put the brakes to the soil warming up like it normally begins to do. Uh, but they still continue to lag. I, I was looking at the uh, the Indiana mesonet that's available off the state climate office's uh, website, and uh, even down at our southeast Purdue farm down in Jennings County. Uh, for the last uh, three, four, or five days, the daily low soil temperatures at the four-inch depth under bare soil are still dipping into the 40s uh, for the daily lows. And and you know, yes, they're approaching 60 degrees during the day, but you know when nighttime soil temperatures uh, still continue to dip into the 40s, uh, that's really more like early April than it is uh, late April. And so. As you move farther north, those soil temperatures continue to lag even more. So, you know, again, that's sort of the catch-22 is is the calendar says it's certainly time to be out there planting. Uh, but we need to just remember that there is, because these soil temperatures remain so cool and likely will continue to remain cool with the, the short-term forecast we've got, um, you know, folks just need to understand that there is a risk of planting into these cold soils. The calendar says it's time to be planting. I don't, I don't begrudge anybody for being out planting, uh, but they need to understand that there could be some issues uh, with how fast and how uniform this corn crop germinates and emerges because of these low soil temperatures. But Bob, you know, you said a, a high of a 60 and low of 40, that averages a 50. So isn't are, are we good to go with that, right? I mean, are we going with averages, or do you want to have? you know, low temperatures that are going to be 50 and so everything above. So what's that sweet spot then? What I prefer, I think, is for nighttime temp, night for the daily low soil temperatures not to still be dipping into the 40s is what I prefer. And usually by this time in late April, we've gone beyond that point. Uh, and, and so again, this is really more like early to mid-April kind of conditions where I'm always a little reluctant to get uh, serious about planting corn, but again, this catch-22, it's now the end of April. Uh, we have don't know what the forecast is going to give us in terms of rainfall. We don't want to get it caught with late planting uh, in May like we were last year. So so again, I don't begrudge people, but, uh, but you know, this 50-degree rule of thumb that we've used for decades... Um, yeah, we got we got to be a little careful how we use it because uh, even if temperatures are averaging 50 or even averaging 55, uh, it takes weeks to accumulate enough growing degree days to emerge that crop. Uh, there were there's a, at least one field out at the Grammy farm that was planted on the uh, 8th of of April. I was out looking at it yesterday. Um, the radical root is visible. The coleoptile is maybe 
half an inch long. It's been uh, nearly three weeks since planting. Uh, according to soil temperature calculations for growing degree days, uh, we've only accumulated 45 growing degree days over three weeks. It requires about 120 to get it out of the ground. Um, and that is simply not a situation we want to get into. And even though technically for the past three weeks, technically the soil temperatures have been averaging 50 degrees. Uh, but you just don't accumulate growing degree days very fast when you're only averaging 50 or 55 degrees. Right. You know, I, I see a similar thing on the soybean front. I, I use that rule of thumb as well, 50 degrees. And, you know, some of the work that I, I've looked at, you know, you think about areas further north and have these these huge swings in temperature and day to day. And, uh, you know, I had a colleague up in Ontario and, you know, looking at some uh, inhibitional chilling and they were doing it in greenhouse. And it was pretty fascinating to see uh, how much of an effect on this inhibitional chilling. So kind of breaking down the, the cell membranes of the soybean seed and how many of those are going to survive this, this cold effect. And so from from a standpoint of uh, tw- the first 12 to 24 hours uh, on soybeans, if we're cold, cold water. Right. So not just cold soil, if it's cold and dry. Uh, you know, it's almost like sitting in the barn, but if it's cold with moisture that these soybeans and corn, I'm assuming too, uh, imbibing this water, uh, that's where we have issues on the soybean front as far as having, you know, you know, death even, right? It's not even a factor of uh, uneven emergence. It's, it's some of this, this kill. Now, on a practical side, we, we don't see widespread damage like that, but it certainly is a concern when you're out three, four weeks and, on the soybean front, you know, I start to worry about some seedling diseases uh, coming in and, and rots as well. Well, and, and you're right. And, and I think if if we're honest about it, we seem to always spend a lot of time talking about this imbibitional chilling. And, and it's certainly a real risk. Uh, but I'll admit, over all the years that I've been doing this, uh, I can't really count many times where I have confidently diagnosed a problem as being inhibitional chilling. And I think it's because that particular kind of injury is very time related. It has to occur in the first 24 to 36 hours. And even the crops, the, the fields that were planted that first week in April, and, and, and I'll admit, I was, I've been fear-mongering about this inhibitional chilling, but a lot of those fields were planted more than 36 hours ahead of when the soil temperatures really began to drop. So I think those fields, by and large, will probably escape the imbibitional chilling injury. But in corn, I'm not sure about beans, but in corn, at least, there's a there's this additional kind of chilling injury that can occur during emergence. So after germination, but during the remainder of the emergence process where that young mesocotyl can be injured by these same cold soil temperatures. And that then leads to the corkscrewing, the leafing out underground. And I think, especially for these early planted fields, uh, I think there's still a a very real risk of that kind of emergence problem that remains to be seen. Because again, we've accumulated so few growing degree days so far, it's hard to diagnose anything yet. But over the next week or two, I really think folks need to be scouting those early planted fields and simply determining whether there is going to be emergence problems or not. And if there are, Bob? Well, that's why we get free replant seed, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> and I say that with only a certain amount of facetiousness because I think a lot of folks look at it that way when they decide or choose 
to plant a bit on the early side if they get free replant seed. Uh, you know, that's the major cost of a replant operation. And so they're willing to, to take that risk. Some folks have uh, maybe an additional addendum to their crop insurance that allows them some coverage prior to the, uh, to the uh, official start date of a crop insurance plan. And so, again, it depends on how they are tempering the risk of going in early and having to replant. Um, and and if, it was, if the expense was totally on them, I suspect more people would be more cautious on deciding to plant when soil conditions are that cold. Yeah, when I when I think about the soybean side, I think you threw a number out, Bob, what, 120, 125 heat units for corn emergence? Right. Uh, yeah, so on soybeans, uh, we're, we're more of a range because uh, just the seed depth control on some of these units and, and residue, but uh, usually if we're 140, 160 heat units is a number I, I've used to say we're going to be greater than 50% emergence. So, you know, we're nowhere near that, as you already indicated, on heat unit accumulation just, you know, from two weeks ago of April 8th and beyond. But um, so needing to go out to take a look at that on, on any idea of stand assessment of soybeans on this early. And again, we're talking 2% on, on soybeans, 4% on corn. But even still, um, going out there, taking a look at it, for us, we need, need to make the call of whether we're going to replant typically by VCV1. Um, so that's when the cotyledons and unifolates are open to the first trifolate. And again, we're, we're weeks away from that with these temperatures that we've had thus far. But, uh, the other thing that kind of hits me with the temperature side, you talked about another effect on the, the mesocotyl, on um, on terms of soybeans, I kind of think of they're sitting in ground. Hopefully everyone heard Bill Johnson and, and preaching the, the pre's and residuals. And so just kind of curious and wondering about their their growth and development during these cool wet soils and the way they metabolize some of this this herbicide so that that's one that comes to my mind right no no you're right because that certainly increases the risk of herbicide injury to the crops that we're trying to protect and um but you know again I, i i sort of come back to the fact that you know the calendar is april 22nd and we're entering the the final seven days or so of april and and it is time to be planting and soil conditions are basically pretty fit around the state we don't know how much rain we're going to get over the next 24 hours but but the point is it is time to be planting and and i think in terms of these cold soils this is just a risk we have to take at this point but you know, if we're going to take that risk, let's make sure that that we're doing other things to ensure good germination and emergence. And you know, I mentioned earlier that you know some areas of the state the soils are beginning to dry out at the surface, and so that somewhat seemingly simple choice of seeding depth for corn, uh, folks need to take into consideration where is that soil moisture and how how deep is it, and do I need to go maybe down to two and a half inches or three inch planting depth for corn in order to reach uniform soil moisture. Um, and I don't, you know, Sean on soybeans, you know, the same situation in terms of, of surface soil moisture, but how deep are, can folks uh, realistically plant soybeans without risking emergence problems? Well, Andy already mentioned that you threw out it depends. And so I'll, I'll bring it back, <laughs> but you know, I think part of this is, you know, my, my starting point is, you know, it's an inch and a half, uh, maybe another quarter inch uh, deeper. Uh, and depending on the soils that you run, so whether they're heavier soils that, that tend to um, have a little more 
Oh, structure to it. It's harder to for the soybeans to emerge. I mean, getting near two inches is is near the kiss of death. But yet, other soils you're able to push through that, or you get a softening rain. Uh, so you know you have to put that in the context. But you know, chasing beyond two inches, I'll just put that in a general sense, is usually not a good idea on the soybean front. Um, I do like to be around that one and a half inch, which it doesn't seem like much, right? When we're talking about a quarter inch here, a quarter inch there, right. but it does add up. And, you know, soybeans, I mean, we're emerging with the, our growing point where we've got the hypocotyls uh, pulling up the cotyledons. And if we snap our necks, you know, we, we do have that issue. How much variability is there between varieties on their ability to emerge from these deeper positions? Yeah, a lot of these companies uh, actually rate their hypocotyl extension. And so uh, if you really dive into it, you can look at that to see how well they can withstand um, withstand that depth and to push it through. And so there is some variability to, to give a, a number how, how wide it is. I, I couldn't hazard a guess on that, but there is some of that out there. Uh, another one to put in into context, um, I haven't heard a large variation in seed size, but you know, seed size certainly comes into play. Again, you think about uh, a large soybean seed. Uh, let's just go with one that's, oh, I don't know, uh, 2,200, 2,400 seeds pounds, uh, seeds per pound, or if you even go to 2,000, uh, that's just a large amount of seed that's got, that seed is the cotyledons, the seed leaves, right? And so you've got that much more surface area to push through that soil, whereas something that's smaller seeded, uh, it's going to have less surface area. Um, so there is this kind of fun little debate on the sidelines. Oh, you need big beans for big yields. and But, you know, small beans actually emerge faster in many cases if the germs and the vigors are the same. So uh, a lot of that comes into play in the emergence process. But once it's a stand is established, they're pretty much the same. Well, and you raised that, that interesting question on seed size because, you know, we have the same questions uh, relative to corn as to, you know, does it really matter if you're planting some of this really small, almost popcorn-sized seed that may weigh 37 pounds per bag versus, say, a, a traditional 50-pound bag or maybe even a 60-pound bag? You know, does it really matter? And, of course, the answer is genetically, no, it doesn't matter. Uh, but, uh, you know, one of the uh, consequences of these continued uh, cold soils that we expect to see over the next week or so is that it obviously delays germination, it delays emergence, it takes many more days for the crop to emerge, and and also delays how fast they move towards, say, V5 or V6 when, when we sort of say that they're done with stand establishment. Well, the longer that corn plant uh, has to survive off the energy reserves of the endosperm of the kernel, uh, you know, the, that simply puts additional stress on that corn plant. So in very extreme situations, uh, really small-sized kernels can be a disadvantage if those young plants are having to rely on them for days or weeks longer than they should. So, you know, that's, that's I guess, one of the things I, I do think of when we get into situations like we're currently in where soil temperatures are simply not ideal for rapid germination and emergence, um, it could put a stress on those smaller seed lots uh, to be able to get the plants established without, you know, expending all the energy reserves of that small kernel. 
So then we've got a way to manage for that, don't we? We've, we've got pop-up, we've got starter. So does that help those kind of small seeded uh, corn, corn situations? You know, I'd like to know who first used the term pop-up to in-furrow fertilizer because the connotation <laughs> is, is exactly what you said, is that pop-up fertilizer, obviously, by its very name, must encourage faster germination and emergence, and that's simply a bunch of poppycock. It isn't true. <laughs> uh, any fertile, any starter fertilizer, whether it's in-furrow or starter, uh, you know, the key benefit is going to be when that crop reaches about V3, because that's the time or that's the growth stage when the plant transitions from reliance on the kernel reserves to increasing reliance on the permanent root system. And that's the time period we want to stimulate the crop if conditions have not been good for initial uh, plant establishment. So, so no, pop-up fertilizer does not help uh, hasten germination or emergence uh, at all. It simply provides some a little bit of additional nutrients once that crop gets to that transition period around V3. You're listening to Purdue Crop Chat with Bob Nielsen and Sean Castile and your host, Andy Eubank. A lot of focus here on obviously getting uniform germination and emergence. Um, what's If you can quantify it, what is the trade-off come harvest if that just hasn't happened in a particular field? Well, in terms of the consequence of not achieving uniform emergence or uniform stand establishment, uh, obviously, the consequence is lower yield. It, it's uh, because you're losing, uh, you're losing a. F- uh, how do I say? I guess you're losing effective plants. You're using uh, losing plants that are going to put on full-sized ears, and that's what it comes down to. Is is if we're going to aim for thirty thousand plants per acre uh, at seeding, uh, we want thirty thousand plants there at harvest, each of them bearing a full-sized ear. So when you get a variable or uneven emergence, some of those plants that are emerging later are simply not going to put on as large of an ear or they may not put on an ear at all. So so ultimately, that's the consequence of un- uneven emergence is some level of yield loss at the end of the season. Well, Bob, so the natural question is, what's variable or what's uneven, right? So are you saying you want it within the same calendar day or you want two days? Uh, I think everyone's got a, their own rule of thumb with that. What What's uneven or what's variable? Yeah, and, and there are a lot of opinions on that um, uh, over quite a wide range of, of time periods or, or whatever. The, the data that I've seen and that I rely on uh, suggests that uh, what, uh, what's important is to have plants within at least one leaf stage of each other by the time you get out to V5 or V6, meaning that if the majority of the plants are V6 and there's a, a small percentage that are V5, uh, you're probably okay. But if you've got uh, the majority at V6 and and maybe a 10% or 20% or whatever that are at V4 or younger, those are the ones that are basically not going to be productive and either put on a, a smaller than desired ear or perhaps be totally barren. It's it's ironic to me, you know, Bob, you and I never talk. So, you no, know, that's right. You know, you know, especially actually, now in COVID-19 days. <laughs> oh, it's a blessing to be socially distant. <laughs> for you. But, you know, as I think about soybeans, you know, I. We, we talk about it a little bit. There, there's not as much hot debate like I see in the corn side. You know, and the corn's got to be up and all needs to be up in 12 hours or 16 hours or, or whatever it is. Um, 
but what I see on the, the soybean side, it, it's very similar, this idea that if the plants are uh, within a, a growth stage of, of each other, and, and for me, it's, you know, by V1, um, that that's that's really ideal. But where it changes for us, uh, soybeans is that, that frustrating crop and, and a beautiful crop because it can adapt, right? And so, you know, those late emergers or later developers – they aren't going to be as strong of a, a yield profile in terms of you know what they're contributing, but they really don't pull back in, on the yield of the others. They don't become a weed, and so um, it, it almost comes down to wanting a, a crop that's uniform for for management. And um, you're going to have those that are going to be good yielding plants, and those that are going to be okay because of the, the stronger brother next door. You know, so if we're right. within a growth stage of each other, VCV1, uh, that's normally a nice spot for us. And if we're not, you know, we'll go beyond that. That's when it starts to get some some huge variability. Well, and I think somewhat to go along with that is that I'm sitting here thinking about optimal populations. Yeah. And, and, you know, our data for corn suggests that corn has a, a pretty wide range of final populations that uh, essentially all achieve maximum yield. And and it's roughly, you know, if, if you have final stands anywhere between 28 and 35,000, uh, you pretty much you're looking at maximum yield. And and whereas in soybeans, I, my, uh, I imagine that that range within which you can get optimum yields is probably much, much wider. Is that true? Yeah. I mean, our, our recommendation is if we got 100,000 plants, uh, we're doing great. And that doesn't mean that we get a yield drop off if we go up to 150, 160,000. We right. get an economic drop off because right. we're not returning more money. We're, we're spending more for that same yield. Um, and then when you go to look be below 100,000 plants, um, there's a lot of these fields and a lot of these conditions that yield just as well. I've got several fields and, and types of fields that are as low as 60,000, 50,000 plants. Now that's not a recommendation, mm -hmm. but they have, they've got the ability to yield just as well as anything at the 100, 120,000 mark. And so there is a huge range on what the soybeans optimal population is. Uh, as you look at the, the yield, as you look at the calendar date, that, that will certainly come into play. But uh, right now, yeah, if we're 100,000, we're in a pretty good spot. I think we made the comment about, you know, we're worrying about or at least throwing out the idea. So, OK, stand establishment assessment. What do you do? Do you replant or not? And so for me, as I look at soybeans, the, the gray area is, is 70,000 plants. If, if we've gone out there, it's VCV1, and we've got about 70,000 plants, and we're trying to do as good of a job across that field to assess that because those are small plants across a 40, 80-acre field, um, you're really not going to gain a whole lot with an overseeding at 70,000. Now, we have to bring calendar data into it, but the, mm -hmm. the answer is, yeah, there's a, a wide range. Well, and if, and if I've done my math right in my head, which I'm notoriously not good at doing, uh, I think corn can tolerate sort of a plus or minus 10 to 15 percent in final stand and still be near optimum yield. And I think if I've done the numbers right, soybeans, it sounds like it's more like plus or minus 30 to 40 percent and you're still within optimum uh, yields. And so, again, that's a reflection of this, I guess, better ability of the soybean plant uh, to compensate. Is that the word we want to use? Yeah, I think so. It, it adapts. I mean, the soybeans that are at lower population and planted earlier, 
Um, that's something we haven't got into today, but their their architecture, their plant architecture, they're going to have more branching uh, planted earlier because they're going to be a shorter, compact plant because of these cooler temperatures. Internode elongation is going to be limited. Uh, whereas if we go higher population, regardless if it's now or if it's at the end of May or beginning of June or middle of June, like last year, we just straight won't have the branching uh, that that we typically have now because of um, we got the photo period coming into play that's going to limit the life cycle. And if we go 150, 180,000 seeds or plants, um, yeah, we're going to be limiting the amount of branching for sure. All the more reason to call it a podcast, right, Sean? That's right. But this has been a kernel cast as well. Dr. Bob Nielsen with us and Dr. Sean Castile from Purdue University. And I want to revisit something you said earlier, Bob. In a couple or three weeks, because of conditions, you're suggesting walk fields, check on emergence. Especially for those few fields that were planted these first couple weeks of April. But given the forecast for cool temperatures through at least the first or second day of May, Anything planted now and, and over the next seven days, those fields, when they begin to emerge, I think, yes, they need to be scouted pretty carefully, too. And, Sean, the soybean side? Oh, scout early and scout often. Uh, that's the thing that we really need to look at. If we're going to think about doing a stand assessment and making a call on a field, uh, soybeans, a lot of people think V1, V2 uh, as early as you need to get out there and, and people are even V2, V3. So we need to be out there about as soon as it's emerging V, V to VC to make that call. Because once, once those suckers have emerged and they're VC, we're talking two inch tall plants, they're already making the decision to branch because of the light quality. So if we're going to make a call and replant, uh, we need to make it before we lose out on that investment. Bob Nielsen and Sean Castile joining us from Purdue University. Sage wisdom from you both. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Thank you. And we'll wrap up the podcast today with our Hoosier Ag Today Chief Meteorologist Ryan Martin with a look at soil temperatures, soil moisture, all of this coming before Wednesday night and Thursday rains, and a brief look ahead at Indiana weather as well. Here's Ryan. Soil temperatures uh, early this week, Monday, Tuesday, 20th, 21st, ranged quite large over the state. They had some temperatures at the 2-inch depth up around Wanata that were still in the upper 30s, flirting with 40. However, you get down into west-central parts of the state, we moved those 2- and 4-inch soil temperatures up into the 40s real quick and are getting down into the 50s easily in the southern half of the state, especially southwest Indiana. What we saw is temperatures get pulled back dramatically with the cold air push from last week. Soil moisture, a bit of a different story, as we have too much in some areas of the state, others reporting dry. For example, you get into the Kiwana area. I've had a farmer tell me there he's missed everything for the past few weeks. He's actually hoping for a rain right now, and you've got water sitting in some places elsewhere. I think the state overall probably averages out to be adequate to slightly above adequate on soil moisture. Not seeing a lot of surplus numbers right now. That could change after this weekend. Two big weather systems moving across the eastern Corn Belt between now and midweek next week. We'll have a little bit of moisture as we move through Thursday, but looking more at a weekend event that could bring anywhere from a quarter to one inch of rain to a large part of Indiana. I'm concerned about maybe more. Then early next week, well, Tuesday into Wednesday, we've got another significant storm event that could bring another round of moderate to heavy rain. So if those two both hit us with their full fury, we could be looking at way too much moisture in our soil profile. At the same time, we see a lot of moisture 
moisture potentially heading towards us. We're looking at temperatures not spending a lot of time above normal here over the next 7 to 10 days. As a matter of fact, as this first system comes through this weekend, I'm looking for a colder push behind it. That colder push stays through most of next week. Now, if we can make it to toward the end of April, so late next week into early May, I see temperatures climb quickly, dramatically, and also see a longer-term period of dry weather. So I think there can be some windows of opportunity, just not so much here in the nearby. Who's your ag today? Chief Meteorologist Ryan Martin. I'm Andy Eubank. Thank you for listening to our Purdue Crop Chat. This has been Purdue Crop Chat with Purdue Extension's Dr. Bob Nielsen and Dr. Sean Castile. This episode was moderated by Who's Your Ag Today's Andy Eubank and produced by Eric Pfeiffer. I'm Gary Truitt for Purdue Crop Chat, a service of Purdue University Extension and Who's Your Ag Today. Timely, relevant, credible.